Hello everyone, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Tiffany Hansen. Tiffany Hansen is co-founder and director of Rocky Flats Downwinders RFD, a 501c3 nonprofit community organization advocating on behalf of people negatively impacted by living downwind from the former Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant near Arvada, Colorado. She founded RFD with her husband, Nick, in 2014 after discovering she grew up under four miles directly downwind from Rocky Flats as a child. In 2014, while dealing with health issues, including a rare ovarian tumor and Graves' disease, she became concerned there was a connection between her health issues and living near Rocky Flats. Tiffany utilized social media and began to connect with others who grew up near the plant and also had health issues. So welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Sure. This is such an important topic that gets a fair amount of coverage here in Colorado, not as much as it should, but not as much for sure as it should nationally or internationally. And when I moved out here in 2013 or so, I had read Karen Iverson's book about Rocky Flats and all the stuff going on there. And I actually moved into Boulder. And I thought when I moved into town that it would be talked about all the time, like it would be regularly in the media and things like that. And when there was a new development around it, I contacted a local publication. I said, are you all writing anything on this? And they said, uh, no, do you want to? And so I did. And I started covering Rocky Flats issues for Boulder Weekly and other Colorado publications for many years. But sometimes information gets out there and sometimes it doesn't. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about why should people care about Rocky Flats? Yeah, I mean, people locally, especially, but I think all people need to know about Rocky Flats first off, right? I mean, it played a huge role in the Manhattan Project and, you know, for 40 years made plutonium triggers. And um, it's the only nuclear weapons plant that doesn't have any signage on the former plant site to inform the public about what happened there. And so I think the fact that there's not any kind of acknowledgement to the workers whose you know lives were impacted and and have you know many workers now have come out with health issues and they're getting some awareness around that and some coverage for some health issues but um certainly because plutonium has a half-life of twenty-four thousand years this is a conversation that needs to continue because just um by definition this is a problem that's not going away right so it does have international national importance so far as this is the way the United States wanted to, quote, protect itself against Russia, right? So we created all of this, these nuclear armaments because we were afraid they were going to wipe us off the face of the map. Instead, what we did is we poisoned our own communities to uh, basically, if you take a look at the evidence, there is undisputably plutonium contamination not just in the area which where the facility was but the area surrounding it which is now a wildlife refuge and then areas even further around that with housing developments even into basically as far as denver and who knows maybe even much further right so the plutonium issue of course the debate is not whether it's there or not it's the most most part it's about what the impacts are so if anyone is going to be impacted it's going to be the people who are living downwind 
and these communities that they're building up nearby. So could you maybe talk a little bit about who these people are? What sort of communities are these? How can people picture this area here? I mean, I think that's what's interesting is when I lived in the area and when when Rocky Flats was live, you know, it was raided by the FBI in 1989 and, and closed for quote unquote cleanup in 1992. So in during that time, there was kind of where I lived, which is like three and a half miles downwind was kind of the close neighborhoods to the plant. So when I went out in 2014, you know, many years later after moving to Denver and not um, knowing about Rocky Flats as an adult, I um, went out to the area and I was blown away with how much development is in, you know, in the area and now so much closer to the plant site. So like you said, you know, where the plant was now around that, it's like a donut. The the outside the the donut hole is the, you know, current Superfund site, but around that would be the wildlife refuge. And then right outside of that is one of the closest neighborhoods is the Candela's neighborhood. And so when I went out there and saw that with my own eyes and saw that families and children were living so close to the site with no, oftentimes no knowledge and certainly no signage and limited actual written um, uh, warning in the paperwork, because I've seen some of the paperwork that the folks that move out there get, and it's like a one page um, form that says something about, uh the this area surrounding had this certain kind of history but when you're buying a house that's just one you know document in a bunch and so there's a huge community that's out there now and you know since 2014 when i first started to go visit the area again it's since you know really started to develop not just in terms of the residential but now there's bars and restaurants and schools and um you know these communities are creeping closer and closer to the wildlife refuge border. And then that's just very close to the Superfund site. Right. And the thing about Rocky Flats is it's such a complicated issue because there are so many moving parts because there is that area they call the central operating unit. So that's where the central operable unit. So that's where the facility itself was uh, from 52 to 89 building these plutonium pits. So they call them triggers for the nuclear weapon. So that area itself was all taken down. So all the buildings there were raised. There's a lot of stuff that's still in the ground there, but they removed a lot of the material. Of course, a lot of the contamination is still there and there are other things that are ongoing. They're dealing with stormwater runoff and things like that. So there's that area, which of course is mobile because also not overly runoff, but soil erosion, all sorts of things like that. Then the area Wind is a huge issue, you know, there's mm -hmm. a wind farm right down there. So the wind has been a constant problem right in that area. Exactly, yeah. So a lot of these particles, maybe they were just in the central operable unit to begin with, but then they move over time into this wildlife refuge. So that was a whole other controversy. And that's mostly what I've written about and am most familiar with. So. My understanding is that they took that land that was surrounding the original facility and turned it into National Wildlife Refuge because they didn't want development there because they were concerned about having development that close to a contaminated area. And it's been basically more or less off limits to the public for years and years. And then over the last couple of years, they decided to open it to hiking, building trails, bike trails, that sort of thing. 
and a lot of the folks who were concerned about, no, there's contamination in the soil. There had been a bunch of tests previous showing that. And then, yes, indeed, recently they found several hot spots, so these areas that had spikes in plutonium. So it's there's no question about it, and it doesn't just stay in this area. You build a fence and the plutonium doesn't move, obviously. It's that whole surrounding area. It's not far from Boulder, and it is just upwind from Denver, and there were all those fires that happened in, I believe it was in the 50s and 60s, and mm -hmm. those fires certainly spread contaminants. So it's not a neat little package there. And folks are saying that the contaminants continue to spread. But this area, if people want to picture it, it's almost like open rolling hills, grasslands with the Front Range Mountains, the beginning of the Rockies right there. And there are all these large homes. So this is not like some slum or something like that. Mm -hmm. These are some beautiful, expensive homes that they're building in the area because it's got beautiful views. It's right in the middle of Boulder and Denver. It's a great place to be, but a lot of folks are either unaware or not particularly concerned about the contamination stuff. So how have you reached out to folks? How have you spoken to folks about this issue? I use, because I live in Denver now, um, I have been using social media as a way to just reach people who are either visiting the area or um, new to the area or considering moving to the area. I join a lot of Facebook pages. I um, I uh, have our website and I use Twitter and, and different things, but I try to do a lot of friend requests to people that live in the area. So I don't use Facebook in a traditional sense of finding old friends. I find people who are either living in the area or lived in the area before. And if they look me up, they'll find out right away uh, the, you know, Rocky Flats downwinders and it, it can either help them find some information or if they're already aware, you know, they can part uh, perhaps participate in our health survey. But um, I've had to use some non-traditional ways to try to reach the community because there's no signage. Um, right. There was a filmmaker, Tony West, who was visiting Denver. He um, did a, a movie called Safe Side of the Fence, talking about workers in the nuclear, um, on nuclear sites and their, their health impacts, but also communities. But he came and he visited Rocky Flats and I drove him out there and he was, he told me he's visited all the sites around the United States and that Rocky Flats was the only one that didn't have signage. Hmm. And I feel like, you know, the people that are moving into the Candela's neighborhood and, and those other neighborhoods that are close by, like you said, they're like a half a million dollar homes. They're big homes. And that's, that's, different for communities that usually surround Superfund sites. Right. If you look historically at communities that are living near Superfund sites, it's usually low-income communities. Yeah. And so that makes me feel like, hmm, something's, this is, this is not usual. And so it makes me question whether people have, how much information people have. And because, you know, like we mentioned, it was Rated by the FBI for environmental crimes in 1989, and then in 1992, started to, you know, go through this quote-unquote cleanup process. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a long time ago. And if you're a young new family, you know, people say you. A lot of people in Arvada, the the, the Facebook pages and the conversations that I have with folks are like, well, people should do their research. People know, and they're making their own choice. Yeah. I just question whether that's actually true because I lived there for 18 years during the time the plant was live and I didn't know the Rocky Flats existed. Yeah. So how could other people that live there after the plant was even active, there's nothing like you said really visible to the eye anymore. 
how would those folks come to know about this? I feel it's, I feel it's criminal to not inform people of the risk and or the history of the area that may entail risk um, when people are recreating or potentially moving into an area. I think it's crazy there's no signage. Yeah, that's why I was so shocked how media wasn't really reporting on it much when I had moved into the area. There's been enough going on with Rocky Flat stuff that there has been a lot better coverage since then. But I also think it comes down to the issue that I, I came across is why they asked me to write for them. They didn't really have any people who really had much of an in-depth understanding of this issue. And not to toot my own horn, but actually do, to do the opposite. I won an award for one of my articles on Rocky Flats. Was it because it was such a great article? No, it's because I actually took the time to look at the documents <laughs> and read them and include that information. And so then the panel of journalists that looked at this said, wow, this is better than all the other reporting. And nice. that's not even the, the fault of the journalists. It's because our media is kind of about putting out the little clickbait stuff and none of these long form reads. And none of the journalists really have the, I gave myself a, a month or so to write the article. Most of them have a three day turnaround. So sure. it's this perfect storm where the information isn't getting out there. So you just want people to know what the deal is so they can make an informed decision. Well, I mean, it's, it's what you bring up also reminds me of the fact that, you know, the, the public and journalists are at a disadvantage because mm -hmm. the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has put forward this agenda and idea that everything is safe out at Rocky Flats, right. but they haven't done any health studies or actual, you know, investigation into the health of the community near Rocky Flats. They haven't, and they continue to not look at autoimmune diseases like MS. They don't look at um, epilepsy. In fact, they don't even look at cancer clusters unless individuals or organizations like Rocky Flats Downwinders contact them and say, hey, someone has reached out from the community with breast cancer. This actually happened um, last year. Her name was Brittany Kelly. She was a young woman who just got diagnosed with breast cancer at 35. And her sister also had breast cancer at 25 and they lived in the Superior area. So she reached out to me and we her and I together and on uh, social media tried to put out the message that she had breast cancer. She thinks it might be related to Rocky Flats. And if other young women had breast cancer, they're under 40 to contact her so she could start to map this. So she did start to map it and her numbers got really high. We contacted the health department and said, these numbers of young breast cancer near Rocky Flats seem elevated. Can you take a look? And what they ended up doing and what they've done in the past is they look at this area that's not just around Rocky Flats, but it's around, it goes up into North Boulder, it goes into Adams County, it goes way beyond the scope of like where contamination maps show the concerning areas especially are for Rocky Flats. Yep. So I think it's, and so that's, we have the health department on the one side saying everything's safe, but we have people like Dr. Mark Johnson, who's the head of the Jefferson County Health Department, who has recently publicly spoken about the fact he doesn't think it's safe or he's worried about its safety. In so much, he said, he said publicly on different media sources that he would not go to the wildlife refuge and he would not live or bring his family, you know, to the Candela's area or live there without more information. I mean, that is, and just that the media can't really know anything except what the health department tells them. Sure, exactly. We expect the gatekeepers to provide us with useful information, and they do seem to downplay things. 
but recent studies have suggested that people's concerns were founded, as in there are these areas of high high levels of plutonium in the outside area. So the areas that are not just in the refuge, but outside of the refuge, which suggests exactly. that there's no reason why plutonium particles would not be in these housing developments and beyond. So I, I think really the question comes down to, and I tried to be fair about this, I have my own personal concerns. And then as a journalist, I tried to put out all sides of that. So What's the likelihood of one running into any of those particles? And if one does, what is the chance that one will be sick? Well, the reality is I think people don't even know what's going on with this. So I think that's number one. Number one is everyone needs to know the history. They need to know what they're getting themselves into if they recreate in the area for sure and if they live in the area. And it doesn't seem as if people quite know that. And so then what we've also got to do is we've got to take a look at what are the health concerns going on in the area. It is very difficult as somebody who has been studying pollution impacts on people, it is very difficult to say, here is a place, here's a sickness, that definitely happened. Mm -hmm. But we can say, okay, here is a place that puts out this kind of contaminant. Studies have shown that this kind of contaminant creates these kinds of health impacts. These people have these health impacts that match up with that. That's enough to go by to say this is something that needs more attention, but it does seem to be that the state and the federal government, they poo-poo it across the board. And frankly, I've seen a lot of journalists, particularly for the Denver Post, they've written some good articles, but I've seen them in interviews. I've witnessed some, they're very dismissive of almost everything until more of the more recent information came out. So personally, yeah. I don't think the way to go about this, in my mind, at least personally, is like, Everything is killing everyone all the time, but I also think it is probably more ridiculous to go, oh, no, we know for a fact that there is no harm being done and never was. That's just absolutely unfounded and irresponsible, I think. Right. I mean, there's just no way that you can possibly say that. And right. so I do think it's I think it's ridiculous to not be open to say, let's be let's let's look at what's going on in near sites like this, right? It's not just Rocky Flats. There's other communities all over that I've connected with, like the Santa Susana Field Lab moms and the um, Westlake, um, the landfill in St. Louis and Coldwater Creek. And so they're even Three Mile Island, like there's nuclear mm -hmm. sites around the nation where communities are coming together using like social media and the internet to connect and say, wow, we're all, noticing high rates of certain kinds of illnesses. Sometimes it's brain cancer. Sometimes it's, you know, epilepsy. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's uh, appendix cancer, like that was in the Coldwater Creek area. And the commonality, too, that all these communities share, besides the fact that they have seemingly high incidences or rare cancers or reported incidents from community members, but they also have been, you know, told by their own health departments that no, everything's fine. But the bottom line is they, the health department, our health department specifically, hasn't done actual health studies of people who either lived near the plant when it was live or even now currently who live near the plant. But they use these models, right? The risk models mm -hmm. of what they think the risk would be for someone who spent so much time in, and that's just not reality, that's a model. <laughs> I would much rather know what actually is 
like the health of the community. And I would have liked to know that 20 years ago before they started building closer and closer. But honestly, Kristen Iverson's book, which you brought up at the beginning of this conversation, only came out, I think, in like 2012. And I read it right away myself in 2014. And so I think there was like this long period of time where really nobody was talking about Rocky mm. Flats anymore because it's it was like in the past in the community's mind right. because it was shut down and you know but the community still has a lot of connection to Rocky Flats and almost a pride for their work around Rocky Flats workers specifically and a lot of the yep. community are workers families because you know 10,000 people were employed at Rocky Flats at one point in time and people needed to live close so they could you know work out at the plant so it it gets really strange with like the pride and trying to say we were young people who were taking good jobs and trying to do the best we could to say like oh did we do some harm in the community right And so our biggest goal has always been like we've never blamed workers we feel workers are in the same in the same place that the community members are in that no, we, you know, don't know if we're being harmed. They don't know if they were harmed. We need more information about workers and communities near these sites. Absolutely. Yeah. And if anything, they were more exposed than even current communities because they were working directly with these materials in high concentrations. So they exactly. were, they were, a lot of them were victims of this and there have been lawsuits and there have been payouts. And then there was even lawsuits around downwinder. So people who lived in the right. area there's so much to this story. There's no way in how we're going to get to all of it in this podcast. So we'll speak to some of this, but if you are just listening to this today and you're, this is the first you're hearing about Rocky flats, there is so much information out there. I would recommend checking out some of my articles if you like, just because I really dumb things down because I have to dumb things down to understand them. So I looked at Rocky Fats as as a newbie and then just what's information that's really important for me to understand. So I really tried to simplify everything in my articles so people can check anything at joshschlossberg.net. You can find the articles there. But there's so much information. There's so many books about it, so many different things. But getting back to specifics, So let's talk about how in 2015 you connected with the Metropolitan State University's Integrative Health Department to initiate a health survey of some of the Rocky Flats downwinders. What's that all about? Yeah, I mean, so after I discovered that I lived so close to Rocky Flats and I was having health issues and I was with other, you know, former classmates and and neighbors who also either had health problems or had fought cancer or others who didn't win the fight on cancer, but just the conversation that we are concerned about health issues, I started to to say we need to have, have more health information. So we need some kind of a health study. Well, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not, uh, I, my background isn't in health research or anything like this. So I started to send emails to a, any email address to anybody who I thought would maybe be interested in this at different universities around the state. Um, CSU and Boulder and um, CU Boulder, CU Denver. And I did end up connecting with um, some different professors who did help us with this initial Metropolitan State Health Survey. And one was Stephanie Mullen from CSU, Dr. Bobby Kite, who is now at DU, and some professors from CU Boulder. But anyways, I finally connected with Carol Jensen, who um, was a former nurse and head of, at that time, the head of the integrative health department at Metro. And she heard about my concerns about Rocky Flats and um, 
started to learn more about it, they had already done work in Bhopal, India, looking at communities that were impacted by a chemical spill some 40 years ago in that area. So they were kind of looking at similar stuff. But I connected and um, and convinced them to help me do this health survey. So they initiated a health survey through the Integrative Health Department, and that went live, connected, uh, collected initial data and did an initial preliminary findings of the first kind of respondents. Mm -hmm. And of the respondents, almost half of them reported rare cancer. Mm. No other illnesses were looked at. The cancers were um, geo-plotted on maps that were overlaid on the fire uh, contamination maps, the two major fires that you mentioned, one was a Mother's Day fire and um, one was in 69 and one was in 54. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they have the Atomic Energy Commission did maps to show where the contamination went. And so we uh, Metro overlaid the cancer incidences that were reported over um, those contamination maps. And it was compelling because it looked like a lot of the folks that were reporting rare cancers were in kind of the more contaminated areas. Um, of the map. But needless to say, the health department um, discounted the health survey because it was a self-reported kind of survey because Downwinders and even Metro was not willing to fund or put any money into doing a health survey because they didn't have the resources. So we just had to have people do the health survey who found out about it and were willing to participate. Um, so that already makes it a non, really a, not a scientific study by definition, but still compelling and, and interesting. And we hoped would show that maybe more research needs to be done. Unfortunately, Carol Jensen retired shortly after that health survey and the preliminary findings came out. And so at the, when she finally left, um, when she finally retired from Metro, almost 5,000 people had reported their information to the health survey, but no additional analysis was ever done of those findings. And the data stayed with Metro because it was initiated with them and went through their human subject committee. So is that getting out there? Can people access that? Well, so that study was closed down when Carol left. Right. And so that data is not to, no one can access that data. It's owned by the university and it is We've tried extensively to get access to it as a community group, and it's not ours. Has the university given a reason why they wouldn't want that data out there? Because the people that submitted the information gave it to Metro and not to a community group. Well, that's fine, but who cares who has it, right? The reason is why- Because it's health information, right? So it's private information that Uh that has to stay with the university because we were, we initiate it through them, but the data then stays with them. Well, that's fine, right? No one's asking for names and addresses. It's just about where they're located. intensively to get the information, but it's not, it's not going to happen because it went through the human subject committee and that information stays with Metro. So anyways, they're sitting on more data because let me just read really quickly. Some of the findings from that survey, basically it says here of the, 1,745 completed surveys. There were 848 cases of cancer with 414 of those cases being cancers designated as rare, which is less than 15 out of 100,000 people. It says these rare cancers accounts for 48.8% of the total cancer cases for these survey results as compared to the U.S. rate for rare cancers, which is 25%. 
the most common cancers in this study in order of prevalence are breast, thyroid, prostate, and colon. The most cancers for the U.S. and the most common cancers for the U.S. and Colorado in order of prevalence are breast, prostate, lung, and colon, with thyroid ranking ninth. So this is this is concerning. This is enough information to maybe not say slam dunk, but wow, there's something likely going on at the very least, and we need to investigate this more. The fact that the university has information and they're not making any efforts to put that out there in whatever way is upsetting. Right. Oh, I know. Trust me, I've spent a couple years um, because it's now, now in 2020, we've just tried to initiate a community-driven health survey so that we okay. can try to hold on to the information. Because the biggest, I mean, one of the biggest concerns we have is that it's the health issues in the community near Rocky Flats are not being documented in any way. Yep. You know, people move in and out. People, you know, who are sick have their own issues. It's the health department isn't tracking issues. Yep. And so we will never know. So our health survey, or even now our community-driven health survey, we want to continue to keep it open so that people always have somewhere that we can try to maintain a database of the health issues that people are facing. Because otherwise people get sick and they die and pretty soon it'll just be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is basically ongoing fallout, literally in some cases, yeah. from the Cold War. So this is this is stuff that a lot of people think is sitting in the past and we're no longer dealing with some of these issues, even though we are still obviously dealing with issues of nuclear armaments and all that. Mm -hmm. But people are like, okay, that this already happened. It's just sitting there in the ground. Everything's fine. The reality is every piece of evidence that I have come across suggests that that is not even close to the case, that there is no question that these contaminants are spreading. The best argument that's out there is Yes, the contaminants are spreading, but not at a level at which is likely to harm you if you go there. That's that's as good as they got, which, in my opinion, is not very good. So, one well, of the, the thing that we know about plutonium, right? The, at the very basic thing, they're saying, well, the only way that because it it's an alpha radiator, mm -hmm. so it can't go through your skin, right? So the only way that plutonium can impact you is if you inhale it or right. if it gets into a wound in your skin or if you eat something with dirt with it, you know? And to me, that's, those, I breathe when I am recreating or just living or in my backyard. I, as a child, definitely got dirt in my hands. I garden right now in Denver, dirt is an issue. And I, I have accidents all the time and I did growing up. And so I think that, you know, we know that women and children are especially vulnerable when it comes to these kinds of exposures. But I think really about children because those three mechanisms of, you know, those those routes of entry for plutonium to enter your body are ways that kids are constantly, I mean, they're they're breathing, they're eating, they're playing, they're getting hurt. That's just kind of like the life of a child. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's concerning. And when I was a journalist working on these issues, I kept my opinion to myself, but I'm not currently writing on the issue and, and who knows if I will. And I'm more free with my opinions these days. And when people ask me if they should hike in the mm -hmm. refuge, I tell them, no, they should not. 
I tell them, no, they should not too, because there's a lot of, this is Colorado. We are not like stuck for places that we need to, you know, cause we're in New York city and we don't have any kind of, we have so much space that is not next to Rocky flats that we should be taking our families and our, you know, and our kids and our animals. And it's interesting that enough advocacy and, and activists, um, work has been done that the school districts most many of them right except for i think jefferson county has has said kids are not allowed to go on field trips out to the wildlife refuge so that's a pretty powerful statement i wonder how the families feel who live in the candelas and leiden rock neighborhoods that are so super close to the wildlife refuge how confusing or or strange or stressful that would be to say hey my daughter's in the backyard she's playing right now but you know, the kids over in Aurora can't even come play for the day on the other side of our fence. Right. Well, that's an interesting point. Do you think that maybe ties into some of the psychology of this? As in, you'd say you buy your forever home and it's expensive and you raise your family there. And then you hear a couple of years later, oh, yeah, you're living in a poison town. Do you think that some people just don't want to know? I get some interesting calls, you know, from people. I've had a call from people who feel like they have, like their husband got cancer, a rare cancer and died and they live super close. And they came and from another state and they had no idea. And this woman called me and she's like, I wonder if it's in the water. I've been following you on social media. Like, I, you know, this is, I also have a rental property in Candela as well. I think about this woman, she lost her husband. He was a bread earner of the home they moved from another state to live in Colorado and it's like you know even though she knows what she thinks she knows by just you know reading what's out there she's so highly invested you know she has a rental property out there now she's got no husband I mean how do you how do people kind of process or manage the emotions around that kind of stuff I think denial has to be very helpful for a lot of people yeah, it's really hard. I mean, not just the the workers. Obviously, the workers can be compared to veterans of a war, right? But I would argue that some of the casualties are the folks who are living in this area. And it's like the U.S. government, in this case, also Colorado, is treating it the way we treat a lot of our veterans. It's just kind of, ah, we, we don't really think that that's tied into Agent Orange or tied into right. depleted uranium. We're just going to brush it under the rug instead of we're going to do everything we can to err on the side of overprotecting people and over caring for people. But I, I think, and I'd be curious what you think, that opens up a bit of a can of worms, right? If they really acknowledge that, say the federal government acknowledges that they're responsible for it and people are at risk, that kind of opens up a lot, a lot of other concerns, does it not? Oh, yeah. I think it's going to, it's kind of set up so that it can never really fully be or at least that's the way it's looking, right? Fully be understood, or those connections cannot be formally made, right? Mm-hmm. And besides the plutonium concern, like there's mm-hmm. 3,000 plus other chemicals used oh, on yeah. site. So it's like, what causes what? And, you know, it's like... Great point. Yeah, it's not just the plutonium. That's the one we fixate on because that is extremely deadly and one of the most deadly substances that humans have ever made. But there are a whole slew of other chemicals that... Mm-hmm. That are uh, that have all sorts of health impacts. So those alone, the fact that it ties into drinking watersheds, they have since rerouted some of the creeks that run from the area, so it's no longer in drinking water supplies. But there are still drinking water supplies impacted. There's Stanley Lake, which is just downstream, and that has lots of plutonium in the. <laughs> 
the soil uh, in the lake. Now the argument is, well, as long as we're not stirring up that sediment, it's not an issue. And then the issue with drinking it is supposedly not concerned, but I don't go to Stanley Lake. <laughs> and you don't know about that unless you have to do the research. And it's, you know, you can't, that's what's interesting. People try to say, well, you, people need to do the research and, you know, it's up to the individual. Sure. I, I can do a lot of research right now, but if you don't have it in your if you don't know to look for plutonium or nuclear weapons facility, it's not going to just come up. And it's if complicated. You, As somebody who's been researching this for years and is fairly well versed in it, it's still this a ball of wax that I have barely penetrated. Um, I mean, when you there was also a grand jury investigation into Rocky Flats, right? I mean, that's another thing that makes it uh, even more complicated. And those documents were sealed. And I'm our organization is a part of a lawsuit with other organizations trying to get those documents yep. that were sealed. And now there's 40 plus boxes of sealed grand jury documents that are lost. Yep. Is that, I mean, that's interesting. I thought they're, you know, privileged documents are supposed to be sealed. How do you just lose something like that? I mean, I have a hard time trusting anything anymore, you know? Yeah. Like, well, there's a book called The Ambush Grand Jury, How the Justice Department Covered Up Government Nuclear Crimes and How We Caught Them Red-Handed. That's on Rocky Flats, ambushedgrandjury.com. That is an amazing, an amazing book, and I definitely recommend that. But once you go down the rabbit hole, i got to warn you, once you go down that rabbit hole, it keeps getting deeper and deeper. And, yeah, it can be distressing. And sure. it, it, one document leads to another document to another document. Some of those documents are hard to get a hold of, as I've experienced with trying to do that for some of the articles. So there's just so many pieces to this. And mm -hmm. basically what I think it comes down to is so I talk to individuals and I'm probably going to have more individuals talk to about this because this is such a huge topic and I do want to bring this up more, but it's like finding what their interface is. And that's usually more than enough because there's so many different angles where all the protests that used to happen there, there, there's just so many things going on with that. One of the things I wonder about is how contaminated is actually all of Denver, you know, from this and, and how much is all around Boulder. These are questions that I don't think most people want to have answered. I don't think the politicians want to know. I sure as hell know that the developers don't want to know. And I think that's a lot of it because there's so much development going on in Colorado and particularly in the front range that anything that would put a damper on that, such as, oh, you know, plutonium is the last thing people want to hear. Exactly. I mean, it's beautiful out there, you know, it's, it it's really hard to, uh, put, put a grasp on the fact of what the history of the area is because you just don't see it. Yep. And you know, it's entirely possible that you can walk out there every day of your life and nothing bad will happen to you. You know, that's, that's, I think what it comes down to risk. It, it's a thing like a virus, right? You can't see a virus. So it's not as easy as seeing a polluted river with muck in it. You know, it's not that simple. So because we can't see it, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Oh, you could just be imagining it. And I think that's what a lot of officials, they'll poo poo things. It's like, well, where's your evidence, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that, that's looming right now, and I, I haven't really heard an answer to this, frankly, from anyone. So it was actually the reason I first started writing about this. They wanted to do a prescribed burn of the area. So all the grass there. And I have looked at documents and studies that assert unequivocally that grasses do uptake plutonium. So they're in there and they're also in the soil. So 
a prescribed burn is something that people do because they want to limit the amount of growth there. And this is a wildlife refuge, so that's part of one of the management tools. So they wanted to do this prescribed burn to bring the grass level down and people fought it. And I wrote a piece about it to call attention to it, a couple pieces and people uh, fought it. And the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is in charge of that particular area, the wildlife refuge, they ended up not doing it. Now, I think that was good. And I thought that was good at the time and it might still be good. But here's a point that David Lucas, he is the, the head of the, the refuge. I forget what his title is right now, but he's in charge of that refuge and a couple others. He's basically said, well, this area is going to burn eventually. And the science does suggest that that is true, that these grasslands do eventually burn. So do you want to burn it now controlled or let it burn on its own? So do you have any, any response to that? Oh my gosh. I know. I mean, I know. It's, just, a tough yeah, one. it's a burn tough one. Burn terrible right um especially when you said like a lot of the contamination that at least what spread off site and everything was due to the fires you know on the plant site to begin with right it's hard so the, to say we don't we don't know obviously the fires on the plant site originally were literally from i believe the incinerator what? caught fire so the materials were more concentrated versus just the vegetation with some potential contamination, but it is a real issue. And I don't think we have an answer for it. Some people have suggested bringing goats on and to do other vegetation management stuff to, to limit the amount of growth. I don't know. But the question is, there's a lightning strike and then that starts burning. Is that, does Denver need to be evacuated? I don't know. I don't know the answer to this stuff. I don't either. And I don't even, I, I mean, I feel like if we needed to be evacuated, we wouldn't be evacuated anyway. So <laughs> that's probably true. No, and we wouldn't probably hear about the fire either. Yeah, bro. We'd probably smell it and see the smoke. So we'd know it's going on. Yeah. So those are the kind of questions that I think are valid. And I do think sometimes the fish and wildlife department makes some good points about stuff. I do think they downplay the concerns, but putting off, a fire isn't really solving the problem either. So I would like to see something done about that. I don't know what, but let's sort of switch gears a little bit, even though it's similar. So you have, so let's bring cannabis into that. Like what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, first let's talk a little bit about um, this Rocky Flats hemp phytoremediation pilot project. What, what is that all about? So I, I wrote a grant um, proposal and it was, I received a grant from the Roddenberry Foundation, um, their Catalyst grant, which is for big, bold ideas that are supposed to change something in the world. And so I wrote a, a proposal stating I wanted to do a small pi uh, pilot project planting hemp near the Rocky, plant, near the Rocky Plants, uh, Rocky Flat site to see if hemp would be helpful in uptaking the plutonium. Mm -hmm. And so we received a $10,000 grant from the Roddenberry Foundation, which is the um, creator of Star Trek. Yeah. And um, we partnered with Ruby Hemp Solutions after going up to CSU and, and meeting Dr. Pillion Smits, who is a hemp uh, hemp expert and who works already in the phytoremediation space. And she connected us with, um, the owner of hemp, uh, 
Hemp, Ruby Hemp Solutions. And um, Dr. Michael Ketterer is a plutonium expert, chemist, soil scientist. So I got the two of, of those folks together for this project. And initially, uh, I thought that we would be planting hemp near the site. And so I first tried to find a place I could plant hemp near the site, and I couldn't get approval from any homeowners near the site. And then I um, worked to try to get soil from the plant site or from some different place, some different organizations that own property near, like the um, the highway, the Jefferson County Parkway Highway Authority. Hmm. Um, we reached out to them to try to ask for some five, five gallon buckets of soil for this project. And they denied us that. Um, also, it was, oh God, another open space place denied us soil. So anyways, the media heard about the story and the Broomfield City Council heard about the story. Mike Shelton was a city council member. He heard that we were trying to do this project and that we were being stopped from getting soil. And it was interesting because why would they stop us from getting soil? We only wanted five five-gallon buckets from the same site that they were going to tear up the road for the Jefferson Parkway, mm -hmm. which is off of Indiana, which is known to be a very contaminated area right, right near the plant site. So um, long story short, we ended up getting the soil after the city council, um, Mike Shelton got involved, talked to the city council, said, this is crazy. Why are they being denied soil for this project? We need to give them the soil. So we were given access to the property. We were we took soil samples, Dr. Michael Ketterer, myself, and Dr. Sasha Stiles took samples, um, took the soil from that site. No, like on the Cray Hardy map, which is a contamination map mm -hmm. that talks about the fires and it's, um, and I think the 903 pad. So we took soil samples from a known highly contaminated site and the soil was tested before the hemp was planted on site at the Ruby Hemp Solutions in greenhouses. So they took the soil to the greenhouses and planted two kinds of hemp um, into 12 12 plants were in the contaminated soil, 12 plants were controls. And over the life cycle, the plants were, um, you know, notes were taken, they were documented about the changes in the plants. And then after the harvest, Dr. Ketterer burned the, the hemp and using mass, mass spectrometry, tested the ashes and found that the hemp did in fact uptake plutonium into it. Okay. So is that good news or bad news? <laughs> right. Um, I don't, it's, it's, it's probably neither. It's just good factual information in that there's no scientific studies that have been done in the United States to actually say whether hemp can uptake plutonium. Yeah. The only study that's ever been done was in the Soviet Union in the 80s by some scientists who were looking at hemp near the Chernobyl site. Right. So our hope is, and the owner of Ruby Hemp Solution is, is working on a scholarly paper that he hopes to get into a journal because his back his has, has an academic background and wants to take this a step further. So my hope would be that we'll learn more about, you know, whether hemp is helpful in planting on sites that have contamination and that in for two ways. One, can the hemp uptake the plutonium and break it down in any way right. or is that is there a change in the way plutonium is in the ground versus when it's in hemp or if it is if it's uptaken into hemp then is 
is that where our project would end and that could help maybe soil not being blown off site right. or in in industrial sites that have a lot of contamination if they use like a, if they did this on a large scale could they burn the hemp after it uptake whatever the contamination was and um then you would potentially store the ash between glass hmm. and that could be more of a long-term storage solution for um, nuclear kinds of contamination right. so i mean i don't know if it's good or bad but it's helpful i think for not just the nuclear um, side of things but also for the hemp field um, because and and cannabis as well knowing that hemp and cannabis have the ability to uptake things like not just heavy metals but plutonium which dr ketterer did not think this project was going to be successful because what he knows about plutonium he thought it would be too heavy to go into the hemp plant so that would be valuable to think about as a user of medicine do we want to make sure that our hemp and cannabis is grown in a way that is not going to be near sites that have any kind of contamination. Right, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. So it gives, it sheds light on that. And also it might be a way to help remediate some of the ongoing toxics there. I know folks have also been using fungi and things like that in an effort to do so. So I'm very interested in that instead of some sort of chemical intervention or just doing nothing, which is more or less what we're doing right now. We're basically just holding back the floodgates and that's literal in some case because there is this dam that they want to breach that might potentially create more contaminants. That's a whole other side issue tying into this. So it's such a complicated thing. But I think this is really excellent. And I think this is really, that's the sort of cutting edge stuff that we should be doing. And I'm really glad that you're working on that stuff. So this isn't about growing weed on the site and then smoking it. But then I see that you partnered with High Level Health to create a Rocky Flats cannabis strain. So right. I, I know you, it wasn't grown on site, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so that that was a project that came to be because I, um, when I was recovering from surgery, I was using medical marijuana. I was using a cannabis strain called Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And I was like learning about Rocky Flats at the same time. And I was like, God, I wish that there was a Rocky Flats strain because people come to Colorado. We have so many people moving to the area. We have a lot of people that come just to our state just for cannabis. Um, and wouldn't it be a great way for people to learn more about Rocky Flats? Because again, there's no signage. So I'm trying to be creative in any way I can to bring about awareness. So I reached out to um, High Level Health and talked to one of um, Chaz Kobayachi, who is uh, one of their their main growers, he's an expert geneticist, and he makes strains um, by crossing different breeds. And so I told him about this project, and I said I wanted a high CBD strain because I feel like cannabis um, and a high CBD cannabis strain could be helpful um, because the anxiety that that this brings up to people, Rocky Flats, nuclear waste, you know, is a stressful topic. I was like, so let's try to do something like a one-to-one -one CBD strain so we can bring about awareness and hopefully bring about some healing and some, some kind of calming effects for people around this topic. So High Level Health was willing to move forward with this. And in 2019, the strain um, became available um, on their shelf. So it's one of the running CBD strains that they have. It's not always on all of their shelves. It's not always in all the stores, but it is 
a rotating strain that, that they have in their stores that I hope sparks the conversation and people what's rocking flats and then they can find out more. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I think that is super clever for getting the word out there. And also it's a practical tool, right? It actually can help people. So that's really right. excellent. So if somebody moves to somewhere near Boulder, Denver, would you recommend they keep a certain distance from Rocky Flats in terms of finding a place to live and in terms of just walking around? Like what are the safe zones? What do you think? You know, that those questions, I. I just struggle with those questions, right? Because people contact me and they're like, I'm moving into the area and we found you online and we're, you know, don't, where do you think, is this place safe or should we move here or whatever? And I'm not comfortable making any kind of comments about those, sure. those boundaries, but I just say, Hey, you know, do your research and encourage them to, you know, Kristen Iverson's book was great because it's investigative journalism. It took her 10 years to write the book. Mm. It's, been fact checked it's um and it's an easy read that that brings all those complicated you know issues into like a more manageable place so i'm like do your research start with that book because then that gives you more places to kind of do some research you know just finding out that hey the guy who did the raid who led the raid on on rocky Flats, john lipsky is still an activist around this issue and still speaks publicly in hopes that you know we can not open the wildlife refuge and not you know have any uh homes near the plant and and wes mckinley he was the head of the grand jury he still speaks about these issues so if people like 20 30 40 years later spent their lives about you know, speaking out against it, I feel like those are the folks we need to listen to because they're not gaining anything. They have nothing to gain by giving us this information. And so I just encourage people to, to do as much research in different, you know, in different ways, research, not just our, with our state, not just the Rocky Flats Stewardship Council, but talking to impacted citizen groups and, the Rocky Flats Nuclear Guardianship and Candela's Glows and Rocky Flats Glows and different community groups that have been raising awareness about some of the concerns around the area. Yeah, it is one of the most important environmental issues I think that this country has faced. It's one of the most, if not the most contaminated spot in the U.S. It has that overlap between our history of nuclear armaments, militarism and environmental movement. So all of these things come together on this one issue and it's extremely important. I'm definitely going to be revisiting this again and it's why I was writing so many articles about it for Boulder Weekly. I thought also there's all these new people moving in the area. They'll probably pick up an issue of Boulder Weekly to see what music is playing. Maybe they'll read one of my articles and I did get a lot of feedback because of that. So yeah, we're all doing what we can to get the word out about there. Whatever your opinion on it is fine. There's lots of different opinions on it, but Getting more information is key. You can go to Rocky Flats Downwinders at rockyflatsdownwinders.com. They have some great info there. And it's just, like I said, though, be careful. Once you start investigating this, you're going to go down the rabbit hole, and there's more and more and more information. You're really not going to look at environmental issues, and I would even say um, the crossover between politics and environment and things like that, you're not going to look at them the same because then you realize this is all interconnected and we can't just look at one piece of the puzzle. I'm against war. I don't care about the environment or I'm, I'm a, you know, an environmentalist. And what, what does this uh, warfare stuff have to do with me? It, it has everything to do with me. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, thanks so much, Tiffany, for taking the time to talk to us and for all the work that you're doing. I thank you for your articles and all the work you're doing because we need more of it. Well, thank you. Keep trying to get it out there and podcasts like this might help a little bit as well. Thank you, Josh.